You're listening to the Co-Main Event Podcast. And now your hosts, Ben Folks and Chad Dundas. That's right. You're listening to another episode of the Co-Main Event Mixed Martial Arts Podcast. I'm your co-host from BleacherReport.com, Chad Dundas, and joining me, as always, from MMA Junkie and USA Today, it's your friend and mine, Mr. Ben Folks. Ben, how are you doing? I'm doing all right. You how are sur- you doing? You survived this past weekend where both of our wives uh, left on an overnight and most of the next day camping trip. Not only did I survive it and you survived it, most surprisingly, they seem to have survived it. And it sounded like quite a time. I was shown a picture of both of our wives sitting together in camp chairs at a campground, uh, drinking champagne out of the bottle. See, my wife knows better than to show me any photographic evidence of what they were up to, lest I ban all future outside of the home activities for my wife. <laughs> the last, you know, I rule this place with an iron fist. You are 1950s style. Quite a totalitarian here. Uh, the last thing I heard from them before they set off on this camping trip was your wife and one of the other ladies involved in this all-ladies camping trip came over to pick up my wife from our house, and as they were loading all their gear into the car, asked her, hey, did you bring a knife? To which my wife replied, like a food knife or a stabby knife? And at that point, I just turned my back and walked away and said, you know what? It, we'll just decide that if we see them again... It's a bonus. Now, see, this though, that's my wife, Courtney, showing her street smarts, getting in the van and immediately trying to take stock of how many weapons there are. Right. Later on, she probably uh, wanted to check out your wife's hiking boots and lean down to, to help her out and maybe just casually patted the, the ankle holster area just to make sure she wasn't packing a snub nose down make, there. Make sure we got at least one baseball bat with a nail driven through it. Now, see, this is interesting, though, because your wife has now, she's gone on her one trip of the year. You, you're probably going to lock it down after this, because in all kidding aside, you're the one who rules your household with an iron fist, 1950s Don Draper style. I have no uh, idea what you're talking about. My wife is leaving town again this week. She'll be gone for four days from Thursday to Sunday. She's going to Las Vegas with her sisters. So, you know what, though, I will once again be fending for myself. It's not you will not. It is not an apples to apples comparison here, because when I asked you when I texted you to see, hey, do we want to take these kids to a brewery somewhere and dump them in the big backyard while we drink beer and see kind of help each other, support each other through this, Uh this trying time? Your response was, I'm basically just going to take them over to my parents house and dump them there, which I don't have that option. I don't have any family here. So when you say you're fending for yourself. You mean your parents are fending for you. By choice, you don't have any family here. (laughs) Also, I would point out, proper preparation prevents piss-poor performance. (laughs) The preparation was having your family willing to watch your children. That's your preparation. Three rounds, as usual, this week in the Co-Main Event Podcast. In round number one, finally, after years of careful planning and secret scheming, the UFC's secret plan for world fucking domination has revealed itself in the form of Amanda Nunes versus Valentina Shevchenko for the women's bantamweight title. And in round number two, finally, after years of careful planning and secret scheming, the UFC's secret plan for world fucking domination has revealed itself in the form of Robbie Lawler versus Tyron Woodley for the welterweight title. I see what you're doing. And in round number three, finally, 
After years of careful planning and secret scheming, okay. the UFC's secret plan for world fucking domination has revealed itself in the form of Dan Henderson versus Michael Bisping for the middleweight title. All that plus just saying stuff. Are you fucking kidding me? And the rumor is we're going to squeeze into Master Tweet Theater, although so far no sign of Sir Nigel. That's about typical. So we'll see. We'll see if he shows up. But first, like we always do about this time, let's do a little bit of listener mail. Listener mail. The first piece of listener mail this week comes from Lisa Marie Ludford. She writes, does it say more or less about Minnie Mendez that the MMA world gives little to no shits about him getting caught with the quote unquote candy, allegedly? We know little to nothing about what occurred and have seemingly shrugged our shoulders at his suspension. This is the guy that on three separate occasions could have been champion, and now he's out of the sport for two years. Given his affinity for hunting poor, innocent animals, did I mention I'm a vegan? Oh, here we And go. his ability to make a living through his hobby, is this the last time we shall see that Mendez in the octagon, and do we even care? I guess I'll say it because everyone else does. Discourse. So, Ben, Chad Mendez former top contender for the UFC featherweight title, got handed the dreaded, the big daddy, the granddaddy of them all, the two-year USADA drug suspension after testing positive for what was it, some kind of growth hormone, some kind of... Uh, uh, not, a, not a growth hormone in itself, but a substance that uh, encourages the body to increase growth hormone production and banned, by the way, so you can't take it. Um, and I guess that makes his... His, some of his early remarks makes a little sense. Then he tried to kind of play it off as like, I guess I didn't realize that you couldn't do this kind of thing. He may have. You'll remember even earlier on than that, Chad Mendes was one of those guys who posted a photo of himself when he was like six years old yes. to show his abs to be like, check this out. There's no way I could be on PEDs. Uh, and you'll note Sage Northcutt did the same thing a couple weeks ago, which... I'm not trying to cast blame on anyone. I'm just saying. So now you're saying anybody who had abs as a kid, yeah. it kind of dooms them to use PEDs where when they get older. Where there's smoke, I'm saying. <laughs> there's childhood abs. There's childhood abs. Uh, we talked about this a little a week or two ago, Ben, but do you think that Chad Mendez is looking around the landscape of the, of the positive drug test right now and seeing all these guys claiming tainted supplements and being like, damn it. Like he missed his, like he missed his window. Like he didn't figure it. Like they, he came along too soon for the tainted supplements excuse. Well, not that those tainted supplements excuse aren't valid. Well, no, I mean I think USADA's system so far that we've seen for dealing with the tainted supplement excuse is what we had for years wanted athletic commissions to at least consider doing. Because you'll remember, I think Mola Wall claimed a tainted supplement when he got popped in uh, Nevada, and their response was basically. Tough shit. You're responsible for what goes into your body. We don't want to hear it about the tainted supplement. Uh, even when I, I believe, and maybe it was a different case, but I believe it was his case where he was saying, hey, I'll tell you the name of the supplement and everything. Uh, you can find out for yourself if it's contaminated. And they just weren't even interested in pursuing that. And you saw that so far with the UL Romero thing, the Tim Means thing, that they will do the testing and look into your claim. But then the problem is that makes it harder to pull off the bullshit uh contaminated creatine defense because you got to prove you got to produce the thing you got to tell them what it was and then they're going to go get their own uh sample of it test that and see if the same thing is in there so you can't just throw out that defense and not expect them to follow up on it 
At this point, Chad Mendez is 31 years old, so he'll be uh, 33, we guess, thereabouts when he returns. Uh, he had been just one in three in his last four fights, including back-to-back knockout losses to Conor McGregor and Frankie Edgar uh, during the second half of 2015. Um, there were rumors online that he hadn't really been planning on fighting during 2016 anyway, that he was taking some time off maybe to, uh, to heal up some stuff and maybe get some distance between himself and those two knockouts. Uh, you'll remember Conor McGregor, uh, looked askance at him at a press conference for returning too quickly from the first TKO loss and then getting knocked out again by Frankie Edgar in just two minutes and 28 seconds. And there's some reason to think he has a point there. Sure, yeah, absolutely. Because Mendez went down easier than Frankie Edgar punch than he normally has when he takes a good shot. So uh, I don't know how we are meant to react uh, as to how this is going to affect the future career of Chad Mendez. Obviously, a two-year ban ain't nothing to sneeze at, but at the same time, if he was going to take this year off, uh, uh, you know, and, and he is able to, to return by age 33 anyway. Uh, he still has his, this career still has some legs provided he plans to return to the UFC and provided the company will have him. It's not like this is a, you know, this is a big blow probably to his earning potential, but he was in a weird spot anyway, having lost, uh, to Jose Aldo and McGregor and Edgar over the last couple of years. So, uh, in a weird spot at a time when the featherweight division is in a weird spot. So, yeah, yeah it's not the worst thing that could happen to you to you have assume, to take two years off. You assume Chad Mendez will return at 33 and, and pick, off, pick up sort of where he left off here upon his exit. Who even knows what will be going on in That's the UFC true. in two years? In two years, a lot of shit could be different. Man, you, just, you think you're just going to show up in there wearing your basil green... Reebok kit, and in two years' time, man, we could be in there in jetpacks, Chad Mendez. Could be standing in the middle of one of those globes of death where guys are riding motorcycles around you. <laughs> yes. Could be having fights in there, for yeah. all we know. That is where we're headed, clearly. Next question this week comes from Matt Webb, who writes, So Giblert Melendez is a shocking 1-4 in four in the UFC. Much like college football stars can become NFL busts, is Giblert Melendez, he went Giblert on both references Yeah, here. just sticking with it. A UFC bust. If so, is he the biggest bust in UFC history? Oh, come now. Discourse. Come now, Matt Webb. I think you got to back up a little bit and get some context. I know, you know, one in four in his UFC fights looks bad. But first of all, there was that lightweight title fight to Benson Henderson that he lost. A split decision. Could have gone his way. He could have won that one. Uh, okay, then he... he Beats Diego Sanchez after nearly getting knocked out. Uh, gets submitted by Anthony Pettis, and kind of the, the height of Pretty Tony, Showtime Pettis as the lightweight, lightweight champ. Then loses another somewhat questionable split decision to Eddie Alvarez, who goes on to knock out Rafael Dos Anjos. So losing to Eddie Alvarez, the, the new UFC lightweight champ, doesn't look so terrible. And then this one, a pretty clear-cut decision victory for Edson Barboza. I think it looks worse on paper than it really is for your boy Gibbler. Yeah, and this is a dude, I guess we have to point out, was just now returning from his own failed drug test suspension. Uh, he had been popped for a year, I believe, uh, and comes back and faces this version of Edson Barboza that has very suddenly crafted himself into a legitimate contender in the lightweight division at the age of 30 uh, after spending several years having established this pattern where he wins a couple fights over middling opponents and then loses to a serious contender. Uh, suddenly Barbosa has, has uh, back-to-back wins over a couple of top guys here and, and, 
you know, if things continue to go properly for him, for him has positioned himself for a nice little run here. Although he is a training partner of Eddie Alvarez and they say they won't fight each other. So he might run up against a glass ceiling, but just in terms of how this affects Gilbert Melendez, like you said, Alvarez, Pettis and Henderson, uh, that's a pretty good crew of dudes. If you're going to pick three guys to have losses to, and it remains to be seen how good, uh, Edson Barboza version 2.0 turns out to be. So if he goes out there and, and just starts taking the world by storm, strength to schedule wise, that probably wouldn't be that bad for, for Gilbert Melendez. Uh, and as far as I'm concerned, you know, as long as there's not a, another protracted PED suspension coming his way, Gilbert Melendez is probably going to be a marketable, uh, guy in the lightweight division as long as he wants to be, because despite this record, he's a guy that's going to go out there and give you a fight against anybody. Like, yeah, you know he's a he's a guy who's super talented on the ground, but a guy who's also not afraid to brawl. So uh, I don't know what his financial situation is right now. If he's still involved in that that extremely lucrative contract he managed to to get the UFC to hand him, fair play to you, Gilbert Melendez. And he's got the El Nino Training Center. So uh, uh, you know, I I expect him to be a legit guy in the in the company for a while. So I think that the uh, any comparison of him as the biggest bust in UFC history, uh, inaccurate, Yeah, at least by my view. Plus, you know, even if he keeps up to this losing streak and the UFC cuts him, he's just going to go to Bellator and do Melendez versus Josh Thompson best of seven World Series style. They're just going to pick that one up right where they left off in strike force, so don't even worry about it. Here's an open-ended question for you. If it's not Giblert Melendez, who is the biggest bust in UFC history, and does it rhyme with... Kirko Mokrop. Yeah, see, that's what I was going to say, uh, is your boy Mirko Filipovich. Just because it seems like he was always just about to get his shit together in the UFC. And in fact, he kept telling us, like, okay, no, this is it. I owe it to them. They brought me in here. It didn't work out. I left. I came back. Uh, and I guess the career highlights for him, I mean, what, the elbowing a hole in Gabriel Gonzaga's head was, was pretty cool. Then he ends his martial times, or so we're told, after that uh, USADA showed up right when he was using various cocktails of drugs and blood, blood plasma injections. And in his American martial times. That's right. And then he pops back up in the Japanese scene, as, as guys are known to do. I don't know. I guess like he would feel like the most high-profile sort of UFC bust, because it just felt like we got him too late. We got him when the best of the martial times were already behind him. Yeah, another thing is Gilbert Melendez's martial times are still underway, man. I don't know how you could look at it and call the guy a bust so far. I mean, a few years ago, you might have said Alistair Overeem was one of the biggest busts in UFC history. He comes to the company and starts out two and three, you know, loses to Ben Rothwell and Travis Brown and, and Bigfoot Silva, and you're thinking, well, you know, the the version of Alistair Overeem that we saw go, what, 10 and 0 in Japan or whatever is is long gone, and all of a sudden you, you turn around, he's strung together four wins in a row, and he's staring down the barrel of a UFC heavyweight title shot. So who knows what might happen? I mean, clearly it's, as we've said a million times, easier to do that if you're 265 pounds than it is if you're fighting in the 155-pound division. But, you know, who knows what might happen? How about Gomi? Is Gomi one of the biggest UFC busts? Um, I mean, he's still hanging around, but... I mean, he's another dude that came to the octagon once he was a little bit past his prime. The fireball man, That's so right. to speak. Uh, so, I mean, uh, you ask somebody to make a list of their favorite Gomi fights, you're not seeing a whole lot of them take place in the octagon. Is no, what I'm saying. I, I feel bad kind of dumping on guys who were once great and just happened to show up in the UFC a little bit too late. 
uh, it's just more bad timing than anything else. Yeah. Next question this week comes from Andrew Millington. He writes, dudes, I'm concerned. Oh, no. I keep seeing more and more MMA media personalities, or at least Twitter presences, making light of the potential for PED deaths. I can't come to terms with how many people are becoming okay with, or sometimes even supportive of, PEDs and MMA. Are they just tired of the stream of potential violations? That's in quotation marks. Could someone be that jaded? If Bellator keeps looking like they do, unregulated venues, squatch mashes, vintage-ass fossils masquerading as fighters, we're going to have the worst-case scenario version of Kimbo Dada, and it could torpedo the sport. Discuss this nonsense, if you please. Uh, I, too, have noticed a rise of people on, on Twitter uh, making mock of the idea that that one of the reasons you don't want to have people on PEDs in MMA is that it, you know, someone could die and that turns out to be a, a huge scandal, potentially career or sport killing scandal. Uh, and I guess the logic behind that is that it hasn't happened yet. So that it's the kind of thing that they would say we shouldn't worry. It seems like they're taking a, let's cross that bridge when we come to it kind of attitude towards someone dying, which to me seems short sighted. Well, I think it's kind of missing the point, focusing on just the absolute worst case scenario version. And I, I have also, I like also the use of the word Twitter presences, uh, that term to describe uh, a lot of the opinion makers in MMA. But I think that one of the reasons you see that kind of turn is, I'm sure some of it feels like, okay, this PED drum, we've been beating it for a while, and if you're going to come up with a little bit of a uh, at least arguable interesting thesis it's easier to do that if you're arguing hey maybe peds are okay or maybe we should just regulate them or something and in a way i kind of see why the fatigue might lead some people to just try to look for a different way to look at it but i you can't both make the arguments that like hey this stuff doesn't really do anything it won't really increase the danger or the risk factors for the people in the sport because if it didn't work these dudes would not be risking so much to continue doing it like when you look at like the penalties and the uh, just kind of personal fallout that fighters face, especially now, uh, if they get caught using PEDs and they're still willing to take those risks, it's not because this stuff doesn't work. It's not because it doesn't do anything. But I don't even think of that it's just a matter of like, hey, somebody might get killed. Because somebody might get killed at any point sure. in MMA. Yeah. And I think it would happen, the more likely scenario would be somebody just happens to get killed and then we learn later, oh yeah, this guy was on steroids and people do that math. And it looks terrible for the sport. I don't even know necessarily uh, if it's like if it's more likely to happen where somebody is so steroided up they just run over there and tear somebody's head off and murder them. I don't I don't see that being the way that probably goes down. But I think the problem that people don't think about is it just if you have this scenario where you have a sport that's so riddled with PEDs, it becomes a sport where you have to do PEDs to compete in it. And it sucks for the dudes who don't want to do PEDs, like who don't want to take those risks with their body. Uh, and it just becomes a, a PED chemical arms race, which is not what we want, or at least what I thought we wanted the sport to be. I thought we wanted to figure out who was the best fighter and not who was who had the best chemist. Yeah, I'm pretty vehemently still in favor of a clean sport. And if it means, you know, the loss of Brock Lesnar, the loss of Chad Mendes, the loss of John Jones, although that last one hurts, uh, I'm still in favor of it. I still think it's worth it. I still don't think the holes left behind in the sport are big enough 
to start talking about a doomsday scenario where, like you said, somebody like Victor Conte becomes the most powerful force in the sport. You know, you could argue now, like guys want to go to Albuquerque to train with Greg Jackson and Mike Winklejohn and Brandon Gibson because they're the best coaches. Uh, you have a, a PEDs free for all. Maybe you have have a situation where everybody's like, "Oh man, you got to go to Denver, right?" Because they they got this doctor who's, yeah. who will set you up right. Which that I mean, I think we've seen a little bit of that in the past sure, in various gyms sure. in MMA, uh, and that's not really a future that I envision for the sport. However, I would also say like, if the PEDs discussion becomes more nuanced in future years, I wouldn't be that surprised because. I think you can make a fairly rational argument that if professional athletes from a lot of different sports are using PEDs largely for maintenance purposes and recovery and stuff like that, maybe it's not that big of a deal. But like as the science currently exists and I think as guys traverse the landscape today, it just would create – it creates such a system where it would be even easier to cheat and so hard to – to uh, moderate, so hard to monitor. I mean, it just seems like an impossible situation right now. Maybe in the future, the science gets to be a little bit better. All of our understandings about the various substances become a little bit better. Maybe we do get to the point where if you blow your knee out, it's not considered cheating to to use HGH to try to regenerate those ligaments faster. Right. Well, you know, and I think that you're right that there's some room for some nuance in that discussion. And I think, though, that the thing to remember is that PEDs aren't bad because these substances are inherently morally bad. Like, that's just – that's not what it's about. Uh, but if the rules say you can't take this and you know that those are the rules and you know or at least have reason to assume your opponent is following the rules and you decide, aha, I will get an advantage over him um, because I will break the rules. I will use this thing that we agreed we wouldn't do. Um, and therefore, I'll get an advantage, and I'll have a better chance of hurting him badly in a fight, and also hurting his career, taking money out of his pocket, basically, um, all because I broke this rule that we agreed that we wouldn't break. That's the problem. I mean, I think that you you can make some argument for, uh, as you said, a little more nuanced understanding of that stuff, but uh, that doesn't mean that you just go like, hey, let's juice them all up and throw them in there to, uh, together because that would be fun for us, the viewer. All right, let's do one more real quick, and then uh, we'll move on. Last question this week from Dustin Endicott. He writes, just wanted to hear your guys' thoughts on Jose Aldo's claim that he and his team had, quote-unquote, spies in old man Edgar's camp. Do you feel this is something that fighters and their respective gyms are going to need to be on the lookout for, is, or is Jose Aldo just full of shit and making cr- cl- crazy claims for no evident reason? Now, the thing that baffles me about this, tell me if, I, if you think I'm wrong, I don't see why you'd do this after the fight. I, th- I think that it would be a fun thing to do to fuck with your opponent to say before the fight that you got spies in his camp on fight week. You're rolling there Wednesday, Thursday on fight week. You say, you know what? I'm not worried about this one. I've had spies in this guy's camp uh, for the last six weeks. I know exactly what he's been up to, and I know, and I got the game plan to go in there and beat him. Give him something to worry about before the fight. Let him turn, like, imagine, you know, make an old man Edgar and his whole team bickering with each other inside a hotel room, try to f- f- tear them apart at the seams. After the fight, though, I don't see what you gain unless your point is going to be, and I can have spies in your camp too, Conor McGregor, or whoever you fight next, because I don't see what what you gain by saying that after the fight. Yeah, the fact that Aldo came out and said it after the fact uh, 
is, you know, if anything, gives credence to its being the truth. Like you said, I don't know why you'd say it otherwise. And it could be that there's just a, a some kind of Conor McGregor mind games going on here uh, that that he wants to send a message to McGregor just in, in case of a future fight. Uh, and at the same time, man, I don't, you know, I'm not a, a blow by blow fight analyst. Obviously, there's a lot of of the intricacies of the sport that go over a lot of our heads. But at the same time, what what are you going to find out from a spy in Frankie Edgar's camp at this point? Number one, you fought the dude before. Number two, Frankie Edgar's been in the game so long, we all know what he's going to do. We all know what he's going to try to do, and he tried to do it against Jose Aldo. Like, are you going to have a spy be like, he's got good takedowns? <laughs> Watch out for those takedowns, man. Well, yeah, you might be able to tell if there's something, especially if it's a rematch on the guy. He's probably going to try to come up with some way to keep what happened to him in the first fight from happening again, right? So if you got a spy telling you, here's how he thinks he's going to erase those problems from last time, that might be helpful. Also, it just might be helpful if your spy is like, he's limping around a little bit on that left ankle. I guess that's true. Stuff like that. Uh, it would be surprising to me. I think, uh, again, I don't know if I have any real reason to think this, but I've always felt like that Frankie Edgar, Eddie Alvarez East Coast camp was super tight-knit, and it would surprise me to find out that they had spies in their midst. What if maybe this is how you could make some easy money, Chad, is you tell Jose Aldo that you're spying on somebody for him. And especially if it's Frankie Edgar, you're just like, Oh, yeah, man. No, I was in the gym all day today. I saw him. Uh, they were working takedowns, and he's really he's focusing a lot on his movement in and out. Uh, so, yeah, look out for that. And pay me my money now, please. Yeah, and seems- meanwhile, you're just sitting on the couch, man. You're have- just watching daytime judge shows on TV. I have long been on the hunt for a scheme that would get me in hock to someone like Jose Aldo. <laughs> Thank you for that idea. This is not the first time we've seen Jose Aldo hashtag just saying stuff that's right? true like as 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 much as we kind of have been have ragged on the the once and current uh featherweight champion interim featherweight champion for not being that marketable and not really giving fans a lot to to hold on to he's been known to to, to run his mouth his, his cup has been known to runneth over in the talking department and a lot of times he ends up walking that back later I, it'll be interesting mistranslated to is yeah. what usually happens it's to possible him. he was mistranslated here yeah again Anyway, that's going to do it for Listener Mail this week. If you have questions, comments, concerns that you want to air to the Co-Main Event Podcast in future weeks, you know how to get a hold of us. You go to the website, comainevent.com, and click the link in the top right-hand corner of the screen that says, Email the Podcast. That'll get you in touch with us. While you're there, you can sign up for the Breakfast of Champions newsletter. That comes out every Friday morning to catch you up on the news and notes that we miss on all those days when we're not recording the podcast because the MMA news cycle just rolls on relentless crushing with with little heed to whether or not there's a a podcast going off or too much heed depending on on what side of the curse you come down on the breaking full and heedless you might say the breaking news curse uh but yeah you can clear that up by getting the breakfast of champions newsletter it's short it's informative we'd like to think it's funny and besides if you don't like it it's really easy to unsubscribe so easy As for right now, though, we're going to go ahead and get started with round number one. Well, Ben, I did some homework. 
this past week. I don't believe you, but go on. Just to clear up uh, some of the gray areas from last week's co-main event podcast. Okay. Kyrgyzstan. Nailed it. Kyrgyzstan. What do you by, think? by homework, you mean you listened to how they said it on the broadcast and you tried to mimic that? No, I listened to one of those YouTube videos where they tell you how to say words. Okay. Yeah. Is that the only is a YouTube video just telling you how to say it? There are a lot of countries that it covered. Uh, no, it was just about Kyrgyzstan. So it was like a 12-second video. Yes. All you right. You can find a video about how to pronounce almost any word on the internet. It's one of the beauties of it. We live a, in a magical age. As a learning tool, as a resource for English speakers. Maybe should have looked into that before last week's show. I had but, no idea, number one, who Valentina Shevchenko was uh, or that she was from Kyrgyzstan. Well, now you know. Or that, frankly, Kyrgyzstan was a country. Now she put Kyrgyzstan on the map Damn in Chad Dennis's she world. Valentina Shevchenko goes out there and pretty much wears Holly Holm around the cage like a hat this past weekend. Ben, uh, I guess we should open up the round by talking a little bit about the fight itself, and then maybe we can talk about the... Uh, the cannibalistic nature of the women's bantamweight division toward the end of the round. Uh, so Valentina Shevchenko wins a fairly clear-cut, unanimous decision over Holly Holm in the main event of UFC on Fox 20 this past weekend. I guess my main takeaway from the actual action, Ben, was that I feel like Holly Holm can be a really, really frustrating athlete to watch compete. And obviously... She's super talented, but the thing about it is she appears so athletic and so big and so long for 135 pounds that almost in a John Jonesian way, it feels like she should just be murdering everybody. Like she should just be smoking people out there. And so to watch her kind of scuffle through this fight with Valentina Shevchenko and to watch her at least appear to not make any adjustments over the the offense and counters that Valentina Shevchenko was offering to me uh, was was frustrating, man. I don't know of a, of a better word to use to describe it like that. Yeah, well, it seems again, and I think we touched on this last week, that Holly Holm is nowhere near the same fighter when she has to go after you and, and ha she has to close the distance as she is when you're coming after her and she can counter you, especially if you're coming after her in a blind rage the way Ronda Rousey did at points during that fight. And I think that's what made Holly Holm look really awesome in that one. And remember after that one, the comment from, I believe it was Michael Winklejohn saying, well, we were holding back a little bit in the other UFC fights we had. Didn't want to show everything we had. Then you went out there, showed the full toolbox against Ronda Rousey, knocked her out, became a huge star. And then in the two fights since then, seems like she's kind of gone back to the person we were to, led to believe was not showing everything. So holding back again, you think? She's like, well, now I got the title. Now I'll put it back in second gear. And I, I believe there's something to the to the argument that she's not doing everything she can do out there. She kind of said as much that that's how she felt in the post fight press conference that she needed to, to believe a little more and, and commit a little more. Um, but I don't think you can chalk that up anymore to her doing that as part of a long-term strategy. Sure. It just seems to be a problem she has with a certain style of fighter. Yeah, and, she, and like you said, she seemed to indicate at the post-fight press conference that, that confidence can be an issue for her, uh, which, which I think is accurate. I think we, we see her in these fights sometimes where she doesn't get her offense going. You know, it, it doesn't turn into a sprint where she gets to counterpunch all the time. Things don't go her way, and it kind of seems like she goes into a shell a little bit. Uh, and, and like, 
that that just seems like a, a an issue that uh you know is inherent to some people and is one that I can empathize with you know it's 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 not easy to be at the top of this game and just be one of those people that goes out there all the time with the the unshakable belief that you're about to punch a hole in somebody else's chest you know what i mean it's like it's a superhuman and humanizing thing to me to have those doubts well uh, and give, let's give Valentina Shevchenko her credit there because she fought a good fight. And she did well exactly what Holly Holm did not do well, which is she had a, a real control of the distance uh, and knew how to u- work it in her favor. Because Holly Holm, again, we saw this, I believe, uh, in Holly Holm's first uh, UFC fight when she first came over. Uh, and she won that uh, that decision, which was over uh, Raquel Pennington, which and it was a split decision. Um and was, we all kind of looked at it and thought, man, that seemed like a fight Holy Holm was supposed to win easily, and she almost messed around and lost that one. Uh, and it was the same kind of thing where she's firing punches and kicks from too far out. She's coming up short and seems hesitant to kind of charge all the way in. And she was doing the same thing against Shevchenko, who I think was playing a role in that. It wasn't like just like it was Holly Holm screwing up on her own. And then when she kind of realized, all right, I got to get in there and get after her, every time she came in, Shevchenko was the one landing, uh, and I think that was a really good game plan and really good execution on Van- Valentina Shevchenko's part, uh, and that really kind of nullifies a lot of the the good offense that Holly Holm has. Yeah, I don't. Did you see any of the gifts that were posted online after? Uh, specifically, I'm I'm thinking uh, by the Twitter user who is at Grabaka Hitman. Oh yeah, I love me some Grabaka Hitman. He's, he's one of the best out there uh, with the GIF game. Uh, and, you know, there are a lot of guys who are much better, like I said, blow-by-blow blow fight analysts than I am. Uh, but he seemed to indicate that Holly Holm just kept doing the same thing over and over again, kind of fainting, I, I think, a right hand and then coming with a left, and that Shevchenko just countered it every single time with that sort of overhand hook that she kept throwing. Uh, and and I don't know, it just feels almost inconceivable to me that you would be in the corner with all of the guys from Jackson Winklejohn that we know are there, and like continue to make the same stylistic error without really correcting it. It just seems strange to me that that kind of thing can happen. Yeah, but I mean, I think we see that happen in in high level fights all the time, where it's one. It's easy later on to sit there and figure out what you're doing wrong when you can look at it all and you're not trying to figure it out while somebody is punching you in the head. It's when somebody's hitting you, it can sometimes be hard to analyze and figure out exactly how you got there in the first place. Um, but it does leave me wondering, I think about the question we asked ourselves last week, right? Like, does Holly Holm, with the benefit of hindsight, wish she had waited? I still think the answer is no, yeah. because we still would not have fought. You'd still just be sitting around with the women's bantamweight title waiting for something to happen. Uh, if you can't beat Misha Tate and Valentina Shevchenko, then you're probably not going to stay champ for very long anyway. Uh, better, I would think, to get out there, fight, make some money, figure out where the, the holes are in your game that you need to fix, and continue growing as a fighter. I still think, even if it didn't go very well, it's better to go ahead and do this than it would have been to sit around and wait for Ronda Rousey to come in off a movie set. I agree. I still, I thought at the time and continue to believe that it was kind of, uh, unrealistic to expect 34 year old Holly Holm to just cool her heels and wait for Ronda Rousey to complete her vision quest and come back to the fight game. You know, Holly Holm's going to be 35 here in a couple months. Uh, and, and, you know, for extremely pragmatic purposes, I bet she needed to get out there and make that money. And from 
athlete, an athletic purpose perspective, you know, she's, she's a lifelong fighter. She wanted to get out there and compete. She wants, wants to fight everybody out there. She's still talking about fighting Chris Cyborg. So I just think both from like a competitive standpoint and from like a common sense standpoint, this was the right move for Holly Holm, especially since there still is no Ronda Rousey as far as we're concerned in this division. Ben, let's spend the last couple minutes we got left in this round talking about the women's bantamweight division in general, because I think you could have made the case for a while that the chaos of the women's bantamweight division uh, was helping it for a while. You know, Holly Holm crafts one of the biggest title upsets in UFC history in UFC history with that knockout of Ronda Rousey. And then her loss to Misha Tate, obviously, uh, spoiled her title run, but essentially just only reestablished Misha Tate at the, at the forefront of the division. I think these last two, Misha Tate's loss to Amanda Nunes at UFC 200, and now Holly Holmes lost to Bellator heavyweight champion Valentina Shevchenko on Saturday, is the point where it stops being fun and starts being silly. Yep. Right? Cause like we crossed the Rubicon or we crossed the line of demarcation here to the point where now this division feels so chaotic that it's starting to be a hindrance rather than a help. Well, yeah, and I think that we kind of said that that's how we expected to feel if Valentina Shevchenko won this fight and how maybe this was the point where it's not just, hey, the more the merrier, another entrant into this round-robin tournament. It, that's where it starts to feel like there is almost no point in even ranking people because anybody like in the top 10 basically can can win one of these fights at any given time uh, anybody can can beat anybody else and it seems like the you don't so much have this tier of uh like a hierarchy at women's 135 pounds as you just have one flat line that extends indefinitely off into the horizon and i wonder how much of that perspective is because the ufc and i guess a as a result us and fans at large focused almost exclusively on Ronda Rousey for the first few years of this division to the point that Valentina Shevchenko felt like a total non-entity as she goes out there and beats Holly Holm. Uh, well, in fairness, Rousey was smashing people. So. No, she was absolutely. And I, I would follow that up, but I mean, it, I just feel like it led to kind of this like myopic sort of focus where that she was the only person that anyone cared about in the division. So we didn't Diaz brother and a beautiful fucking body. Yeah, We didn't take note of people like Amanda Nunes. We didn't take note of people like Valentina Shevchenko who are now, you know, now that we've put all the marbles in a, in a cup and spilled them out have turned out to be at least for the time being among the best in the division, among the best marbles, among the best marbles. We have the big mashers. Uh, <laughs> I would also argue that right now it feels like the division could really use a stabilizing force. And I guess my question is, is that stabilizing force Ronda Rousey? You know, I, I, this, the longer she stays gone, the more I have to entertain the concept that either she won't come back or if she does come back, it'll be to make a little money here and there. And it won't be to come back and recommit herself full time to the life of a professional mixed martial arts fighter. Do you not get that sense? It's hard to say at this point since we haven't. Really You're going to wait and see all that Roadhouse remake does? Yeah, we haven't seen anything from her at all, uh, uh, except for that weird commercial that, that they debuted this past week on Fox. Uh, we talked a lot about after Holly Holmes loss and, you know, her first loss to Misha Tate and then Misha Tate's loss. I think people are, are, are looking at this thing like both of those rematches are spoiled for Ronda Rousey, but I think I disagree at this point. It seemed like 
on the immediate heels of that loss to Holly Holm, everybody was like, how could they possibly want Ronda Rousey to fight Holly Holm right off the bat again? It's, it's suicide for her to walk in there against this killing machine. Well, I mean, now Holly Holm has back-to-back losses and Misha Tate is no longer the champion. It seemed like if that was your attitude, then the championship fights that you squinted at are now the tune-up fights that could set Ronda Rousey up for a title run. Man, she ain't taking no tune-up fight. She's yeah, coming she's, right back, going going right for the gold. The UFC's not messing around with that stuff. Well, ain't su- nobody got time for that. I suppose if that if that was your attitude, the division seems wide open for that approach yes, as it does. well at the moment. Anyway, that's going to do it for round one. Sir Nigel Longstock just walked in my front door unannounced. So I guess we're going to do a little Master Tweet Theater. And that starts right now. Well, it's that time again. We welcome back friend of the show and noted theatricalist, Sir Nigel Longstock. Sir Nigel, how are you? Good day to you, sir. I am beset by histamines, but spirits are high. Well, I'm glad to hear at least part of that. Uh, do you have a half-assed theme that you plan to deviate from immediately? Yes, sir, I do. And we hew rather closely to the theme this time. I'm nope. Quite, Don't quite believe it. I'm pleased with myself. Nope. Mm, the theme is that glamorous fighter lifestyle. <laughs> okay, Chad, surely this one. He yeah. ought to be able to stick to this it one. It would seem like this one would be pretty easy to find five tweets. That's what I like about it. Yeah, we'll see. <clears throat> Let us begin. Yeah. This episode of Master Tweet yeah, Theater yeah, is brought... What? what? Quiet, you! <laughs> That's, you're costing me $15, sir. <laughs> <clears throat> This episode of Master Tweet Theater is brought to you by Quality Farms Ice Cream. All the wholesome ingredients your family loves, plus tri-sodium glutamate, at half the price of traditional ice cream. Why pay more for dairy-based ice cream that gives you less? Quality Farms gives you all the rich taste without the premium markup, but with xanthanide. After four to six (laughs) weeks of exposure, your family won't know the difference, but your wallet will. At this point in the radio advertisement, I'm legally obliged to tell you that the cream in Quality Farms ice cream is spelled with a K. Try our new flavor, cookies and cream and maltodextrin. <laughs> All right, can we get on with it now? You made your $15? Yes, let us begin. <clears throat> Tweet the first. Sledgehammer drills. It's funny how we use things people do for a living as a workout. I got this one, Chad. Are you got really? Yep. So you know it. it. You yep. got it cold. So I guess I better guess first. Uh, that feels to me like a Randy Couture slash Rich Franklin style tweet. Uh, but I'm going to go off the beaten path and say that that might be Sage Northcutt. Well, you done fucked up because that's Rich Franklin. Oh, it is. Damn it. it is Rich Franklin just joining the 1%, I suppose. <laughs> I outthought myself there. I saw this tweet. I think he tweeted this this morning, right? And he's uh, there's a picture of him uh, hitting a, a tire with a sledgehammer. Happy and retired. What is he doing still hitting a damn tire with a sledgehammer? So that he can have these epiphanies about how isn't it strange that what is work for one man is a tool of self-improvement for another. I guess. He just blew your fucking mind is what he did. Yeah, he blew my guess is what happened. <laughs> tweet the second. Tried to work out with Snapchat. Phone died, of course, but follow me. I'm incredibly lonely. 
Okay. That's interesting. That's an interesting one. That is. I'm going to say that one is Matt Mitrione. That's a pretty good guess, I guess. Um, who is self-aware enough to crack a self-deprecating joke on Twitter? Uh, and also tech-savvy enough to crack that joke on Twitter about using Snapchat. The list shortens. Yeah. Um, <laughs> I'm drawing a blank here. Uh, I'm going to go friend of the podcast, Julie Kedzie. Okay. Both fine guesses, both apt to feel the gnaw of loneliness, and both wrong. It is Todd Duffy. Huh. Oh. How about that? Recently remembered heavyweight Todd Duffy. I consider him a Matt Mitrione figure, just for the record. And I, I look forward to Julie Kedzie's response to you calling her sad and lonely. No, it was, it was me complimenting her sense of humor. Well, we'll see how she takes it. It's interesting. I see Todd Duffy as more of a Tusherer figure. <laughs> well, that's, come on. You're trying to get yourself beat up by Todd Duffy? <laughs> if he can catch me. <laughs> tweet the fourth. Uh, the first half of this tweet is an inscrutable string of Japanese characters, which I will not pronounce aloud. Okay. Even though it's phonetic, and I probably could. <laughs> <laughs> what an asshole. It translates to, no more fuck, no more party, no more cookie party, can't wait to fight, I can't party. I know who that is, but I don't know his name. <laughs> it's that one. Uh, that one guy. Yeah, that guy. We both know. Yeah. We both know. He's always talking about fucking bitches and, right. and like yep. that. Yeah. Yep, that it guy. is. It is that one guy, <laughs> okay. Teruto Ishihara. Yeah, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to say we're right. I'm going to give us credit for okay, that yes, one. Yes, I agree. I'm gonna, we both in our mind knew who that was. We basically knew. I still don't know the name, though. Say it again. Teruto Ishihara. Okay. No more cookie party. <clears throat> rules of this game are flexible. <laughs> did, did did you translate this yourself? No. Because I know no. you have a little bit of a working Japanese. It's true, but this Japanese contains kanji, a form of inscrutable squiggling that the Japanese use to anger Westerners. <laughs> I'm glad we have our Japanese correspondent the, 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 to come in here and give us this... That we need someone who can not only fail to illuminate the subject for everybody, but also piss off a good segment of the, the audience. In Japan, a bow is a handshake, and a handshake is a paid sex act. <laughs> God damn it. <clears throat> Tweet the fifth. <laughs> this is a visual that I will describe to you at the end. Oh, good. <clears throat> First you describe some Japanese squiggling, now some visuals. It's a panoply. A lot of imagery in this week's radio broadcast. <clears throat> Tweet the fifth. Just got the last copy. Sorry, Reebok. Picture of an all-over print t-shirt with a human anus on it. I got this one, too. Did you see the picture? It's horrifying. I have seen the picture. This is the last Master Tweet Theater, isn't it? It's the last <laughs> one, the way this is going. Uh, the poet Philip Baroni. The Black Beast, Derek Lewis. It is! It is Derek Lewis getting the last shirt printed all over with a human anus. It's ridiculous. The last one, huh? It's amazing. It's so vivid. I assume this is a new technology that has been bent to anus production in the last few weeks. It is disturbing for those, for those people who still have not heeded my recommendation of following Derek Lewis on Instagram. Uh, if this one doesn't convince you to do it, then you probably shouldn't do it because you don't want what's on there. Derek Lewis's Twitter twists the very fabric of reason, sir. <laughs> well, that's it for Master Sweet Theater. Uh, 
installment that I definitively and dominantly won. Uh, what else you got going on, Sir Nigel? You know, it's funny you should ask, sir. I've just finished wrapping an exciting project about a six-year-old boy who helps a Detroit auto plant adjust to its new Japanese managers, while at the same time defending it from burglars. I see. And what's it called? It's called Gung Home Alone. And what role do you play? I play an uptight manager, Katsuhiro. What a coincidence. Well, that was Master Tweet Theater, and that was Sir Nigel Longstock. Thank you, sir. Well, Chad, the violent month of July in the UFC is about to come to an end. The last one in this busy calendar month pits Robbie Lawler, UFC welterweight champion, against, at this point, probably the contender people are least excited about, Tyrone Woodley. Uh, now, that's what you got on tap here at uh, UFC 201, which we talked about kind of the uh, effect of having UFC 200 and all the events we've had this month. And leaving the lineup a little thin elsewhere. This one is kind of a, a decent rebound when you look at the card. Plus you get to see basically a high priest of violence at this point. Robbie Lawler going back in to defend his title. Can you get yourself jacked for this one? Or are you too busy thinking about all the other welterweight contenders from guys like the Wonder Man, Stephen Thompson, who you'd rather see Robbie Lawler fight? No, I mean I think that uh, if nothing else, Robbie Lawler has proved to us time and time again in his career that he's a dude that you pretty much always want to watch fight uh, precisely because he he brings the violence. Uh, recent history around UFC titles has me a little bit uh, nervous for the longevity of his reign, I guess you could say. Uh, he's actually, what, the second longest reigning UFC champion right now, right? Second longest reigning current champion behind Mighty Mouse, who's been champion since uh, September of 2014. Uh, Robbie Lawler won the title December 6, 2014 and has defended it twice. Uh, if that tells you anything about what's going on with champions right now, uh, the other champions have defended a total of zero, one, zero, 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 and one times, respectively. So, uh, I think we, you're right that we are overlooking this fight a little bit in our excitement to see Robbie Lawler versus the Wonder Man Stephen Thompson and other welterweight contenders. Uh, but considering recent events, that seems like a bad idea to me. Yeah, I'm sure you're right there. Well, And we talked before about how a lot of stuff about uh, Robbie Lawler's style as champion, which has been very different than, you know, say, GSP's style when he was UFC welterweight champion – has kind of led us to try to emotionally prepare ourselves for this being a fun title reign that maybe doesn't last that long. Not because he's not a good fighter, but just because the number of times we've had to see fifth-round Robbie, Robbie Lawler come back in and save the day for him, sometimes squeaking out a exciting decision by a, a pretty narrow margin, makes you think you can only do that for so long before it goes against you. Kind of the same thing we said about Benson Henderson, but more fun the way Robbie Lawler does it. And it seems like, especially against a guy like Tyron Woodley, uh, his plan will be heavily dependent on not letting Robbie Lawler get his plan off the ground. Uh, and it makes you, it does make you wonder if you're the superstitious type looking at all the UFC champions fallen. Is this the time where we see 
Robbie Lawler's title taken from him in a, let's just say, unsatisfactory way. Yeah, well, the thing about Robbie Lawler is, like, as dominant as a lot of his finishes have been, uh, all four of his last four fights have gone to the fifth round, and three of them are decisions, two of them are split decisions, the one over Carlos Condit in his last fight at UFC 195, and then over Johnny Hendricks at UFC 181. So the the modern-day Robbie Lawler fight uh, definitely like r- rides the ebb and flow of momentum. There's always moments where you think to yourself, oh, is, is Lawler going to give this one away? Uh, and, you know, I think that's a dangerous strategy to have against a guy like Tyron Woodley who can control uh, the momentum of a fight and control where a fight uh, is contested with his wrestling skills. At the same time, though, uh, I think if you were if you had twenty dollars, you never wanted to see again. It seems like Robbie Lawler would be the way to bet. Yeah, uh, I mean Woodley comes in with two straight wins with the TK over the TK over Dong Young Kim and and split decision over Kelvin Gastelum. It's not exactly as though Tyron Woodley has been lighting the world on fire. No, that's true. Uh, and I guess if this fight had happened. Four or five years ago, you would have thought, well, this is exactly the kind of fight Robbie Lawler loses, where he gets taken down, he looks, he, he looks up at the, the big screen with just dismay and disdain on his face because somebody won't, won't bang bro. Um, but I don't know, you know, the, the, the more recent Robbie Lawler that we've seen has seemed like he's really kind of closed that hole in his game. I was a little bit surprised to see him come out like, if you looked at the odds, he's like a two to one favorite. In this one, which seems high to me, because Tyron Woodley, he can still do a lot of things really, really well. Yeah, he definitely does. He's one of those guys that, that for whatever reason, appeared to earn a reputation with the UFC hierarchy as a guy who let down in big fights. Like uh, the guy's only got three losses, you know what I mean? Uh, in in eighteen fights, so it's hard to know exactly how he like came to be stigmatized I guess with that uh with that reputation and it seemed like Dana White decided that really early on like yeah. after I think it was after the Jake Shields loss wasn't it when he came out and and said that that, Tyron, he chokes. that Tyron Woodley chokes in big fights which I mean I guess this is this if you're Tyron Woodley this is your chance to go out there and and get ultimate redemption ultimate revenge against the people who who think of you that way uh and I guess it's more superstition than anything else leads me to believe that this this could be a, a little bit of a trap fight for Robbie Lawler just because it seems like if something can happen to spoil the matchups we've all been waiting for as of late, it seems like that's the way it's going. You're saying you feel like you don't deserve to be happy. That's right. And the universe won't let you be happy, so it won't give you Robbie Lawler versus the Wonder Man for the UFC welterweight title. There could be something to that. See, Confidence this, is an issue. Yeah, you know, I'm sure it's probably not really an issue for Robbie Lawler looking past a guy like Tyron Woodley to the next fights, but it does seem to be an issue for the fans and for selling this one to everybody because, you know, we're all really excited about Robbie Lawler and the, the style that he brings, the action that he brings, and the just his propensity for violence, and yet it does seem like this is one we got to get out of the way. This is the vegetables we got to eat before we can have our ice cream, does it not? It does a little bit. Um and again, I think, you know, deserve it or not, that goes back to our view of Tyron Woodley, uh, not necessarily as a guy who chokes in big fights, but a guy who has a, a like a wrestling centric, uh, skill set and doesn't always craft the most exciting fights in the world. 
it's it's funny that you bring that up because you know I think that there's a a good chance that this UFC two two hundred one pay per view uh, turns out to be a fun one, but at the same time you look at this card and it kind of feels like a card that, especially in the immediate wake of UFC two hundred, could easily be overlooked. Uh, you look at the, just the official poster, which you can see on the Wikipedia page, uh, and it sure looks like they just very quickly photoshopped existing photos of Robbie Lawler and no. Tyron Woodley together, and we're like, should we put anybody else on this poster? Nah, we're good. Just yep. ship it. Just ship it off. I'm looking at it right now, and all I can say about it is, yep, that's them. Those are the two guys. Yeah, it looks like maybe there's a slight explosion effect going on between the two of them, but other than that, I mean, it's possible whoever did this had to real quick Photoshop Brock into those UFC 200 posters. Had so a lot on their plate, you're saying? There's a lot of stuff going on yeah. at the time. I, I envision there's a lot of late nights at the, the Zufa graphic design department. In any case, I, I think that the way to bed is uh, maybe a Robbie Lawler uh, KO or TKO here, but Tyron Woodley certainly has the skills to make it interesting. Uh, but it, it's a fight I'm looking forward to, too, man, just because I do like to watch Robbie Lawler fight, and Tyron Woodley has been a guy who has been in and around the upper echelon of the welterweight division for a long time, and a guy where uh, it didn't necessarily seem like he was going to get his shot, and now he's gotten it. So I suppose that, that there's a, a feel-good aspect to that. Uh, I can tell you feel really good about it. The enthusiasm in your voice. Do you feel like I need to, to sell this one a little bit more or, or? You know what? No, just, hey, feel how you feel, man. Cause I was gonna, uh, suggest that we move on to Are You Fucking Kidding Me? But if you want, if you have a sales pitch you want to lay on us, I no, mean, I'm ready to hear it. I do not. I left my sales pitch at home. Okay. So you're just, you're just throwing rocks at a glass house. That's what I'm doing. All right. Let's do Are You Fucking Kidding Me? And then we'll move on to round number three. Ben, what is your Are You Fucking Kidding Me for this week? Well, Chad, I know you saw on, uh, the main card of the UFC on Fox 20, Felice Herrig makes her, her comeback after, uh, almost 500 days away from the cage, uh, beats. Now, here's what they said on the broadcast over and over again. Kaylin Coran. All right. Okay, all right. That's also, not how I have ever said it before. But. Me neither. I assume that, you know, they talked to her and she said, hey, this is how my name is pronounced. And they said, okay, I guess we'll, we'll just change it now and we'll act like we've been saying it that way forever. But during the fight, when talking about Felice Herrick, they mentioned who she has trained with for a long time, Jeff Curran. The names are spelled the same, Chad. Okay. C-U-R-R-A-N. But it's Curran and then it's Curran. Are you fucking kidding me? What are you trying to do to me over here? So wait, this is a pronunciation based? Are yeah. you fucking kidding me? It's purely a pronunciation based. Okay. I'm with it. Are you fucking kidding are me? Are you fucking kidding me? Is there nothing to believe in anymore? You know, for a while they used to do that thing where they would send out the emails that had like actual, uh, sound files of the fighters saying their own names. I think they still do that, right? John Annick says that he, that's what, what he goes on. Oh, really? Right? I, I got them for a while, but I, I must have been taken off that list. Uh, not, I know that was a very sad day for I me. know. Uh, well, remember when we first got into uh, uh, Joanna Yajajic, we tried to listen to her sound file over and over again to see how to actually uh, correctly pronounce her name, and it was just no help because she is making sounds with her mouth that English speakers cannot make. When that's when we decided to just go with Joanna Champion. Champy, if you nasty. Well, Ben, later on in the UFC on Fox 20 broadcast, you know I'm a stickler for the details. I don't know if you noticed when Holly Holm came into the, uh, what is it, still the Harley-Davidson prep point? We still allowed to, to sponsor stuff like that? Sure. Maybe. Yeah, why not? It's controlled by the company, right? She couldn't get the zipper down on her, uh, 
her fighter kit, her 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 uh her warm up jacket there. Tried twice to get the zipper down on her Reebok jacket, and then decided to say screw it. Pulls it over her head. Promptly goes in there and loses this decision to Valentina Shevchenko. And I guess not a surprise because we know how this stuff works. But a couple of days later, it turns out Holly Holm made all of two thousand five hundred dollars in reported uh athlete payout from the uh the Reebok apparel sponsorship. To fight in the main event on Fox. Now, see, I'm just spitballing here, Ben, but it, I think if you take a wild guess, you might come up with the hypothesis that perhaps for her main event fight on network television, Holly Holm could have earned a little bit more than that had there still been third-party sponsors in the octagon. Instead, she wears a crappy-ass Reebok sweatsuit down to the octagon that she can't get unzipped and then makes 2.5K for her trouble. Are you fucking kidding me? Are you kidding me? Anyway, that's going to do it for round two. We'll be right back with round number two. Well, Ben, they're actually going to do it. At this point, all reports indicated that the middleweight division is headed for a title showdown between 45-year-old Dan Henderson and 37-year-old Michael Bisping. I guess it makes a certain amount of poetic sense, since it was Dan Henderson who crafted the all-time highlight reel knockout over Michael Bisping at UFC 100, one that you know a fella like Bisping has been thinking about probably every day of his damn life since it happened. Now we find Michael Bisping on top, able to perhaps call his shots a little bit. And uh, we're going to get this this rematch that I don't know that anyone has really been that hungry for, but is nonetheless one that's going to happen. I have almost no words. What is your initial reaction? You know, I thought Michael Bisping did a pretty good sales pitch for it. Uh, As he is wont to do. Yeah. Uh, using state-run TV over there, where he is a fixture, and responding to somebody who asks, you know, what kind of sense does it make? Why not fight Jacare or a rematch with Luke Rockhold or something? To uh, One of those fights that, as far as looking at where everybody is in the middleweight rankings, makes a lot more sense. And he basically went on a, a rant about the emotional value of this one. Dan Henderson about to exit the sport. He wants to get one back, wants to get a little revenge on Dan Henderson. Uh, Dan Henderson still uses the silhouette of him in the air about to smash Michael Bisping's face needlessly as like his logo, which is kind of an awesome move for Dan Henderson. Um, and so, hey, I got to fight him now before he retires. Those other guys aren't going anywhere. I'm going to beat Dan Henderson, get my revenge, and then take on the rest of the middleweight division, which... I'm sure that is the way Michael Bisping sees it, and it's it works as a sales pitch for it because you got to admit that there is some kind of logic to it, and that you will be able to sell some people on this fight. People are going to be interested in it. What I think is a pretty sweet move is Dan Henderson saying beforehand, "Win or lose, he's going to retire." Uh, for one thing, I'll be interested to see if he holds to that, even if he becomes UFC middleweight champion, and then has to walk away, has to basically, you know be the dude who who takes off the crown the moment he gets to put it on, which is not something we've seen a lot. But I always like it when somebody says beforehand, you know what, this is going to be my last one, don't care how it goes, just going to go out there, lay it all on the table, uh, and when they actually stick to that. 
I think it's kind of an awesome move to do that going into a title fight against like your hated rival. Yeah, it's a pretty uh, masterful sales job from both ends, really, when you think about it. And we've commented on this in the past, but that's basically been Michael Bisping's job throughout his UFC career is that uh, he goes out there and sells the fight no matter who he's who he's fighting against. It's it's. You know, as good of a, an actual fighter he is from bell to bell, his his true talent may be uh, laying out that sales pitch and and actually being able to talk people into it in a in a way that he can make it sound like uh you know what he's saying is logical and 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 you know bring people around to his way of thinking. It it is interesting about Dan Henderson, as you mentioned, he's been saying his last two, three fights that he's getting close to the end for a while. He was just, he wasn't even trying to hear it. You'd talk to him about retirement. Uh, now he's, he's been trending that way. His last couple fights, he's been actively agitating for one of those jobs with the UFC that, uh, certain guys get when they call it quits, pay me to quit. One but of those you're, jobs. you're right. I think to say that the guy that we know, Dan Anderson, the fighter, Seems like he would have an awful damn hard time walking away from the sport if he just got a shiny new belt with which to hold up his pants. Like he, he seems like the kind of guy that in his lifelong wrestler slash MMA fighter mind would be like, well, now I'm the best. Now I'm on top. He Can't also, walk away now. He also seems like the kind of guy who likes money enough that he would do the math and be like, man, how about if I just defended it once? Just to get that sweet payday. Just one time. Then I'll go away. Then I'll have enough money. It is hard to see him actually falling through on that. And yet, wouldn't it be kind of rad if Dan Henderson went out there, took the title from Michael Bisping, became middleweight champion just long enough to pose for a few pictures, and then said, here, you can have it back. You guys decide what you want to do with it. And then the UFC basically has a unofficial tournament between you know Michael Bisping, Luke Rockhold, Jacare, and Chris Weidman. And you just have a like a whole new start for the middleweight division. It could be a whole lot of fun if yeah, everybody actually no. stuck to their word here. Of course, yeah, it could be a, a sweet deal. You could you. It seems like exactly the right time in the middleweight division to pull that kind of stunt. Uh, and and you know that I, I agree with you. I think that that would be a heck of a turn of events if you're Michael Bisping's scriptwriter. If you're the dude who's writing the movie about Michael Bisping's life, if he got knocked out a second time. By Dan Henderson. First of all, if you're Michael Bisping, man, ouch. Uh, second of all, I guess it would have to be like in Ali when the credits just roll while he's up on the corner celebrating the win and the rumble in the jungle, right? Well, except that he would be – the credits would be rolling. Right. You'd have like, to just roll the credits as Michael Bisping knocks out Luke Rockhold, right? Okay. Like okay as, yeah. as Rockhold falls down – you know, produced by Lorenzo Fertitta would have to <laughs> scroll up past the screen. Okay, I see what you're saying. Or this is the the dark moment that the hero must return from. The interesting thing about this fight, too, is considering the style that we think Michael Bisping has to fight and considering perhaps the one tool Dan Henderson still has in his toolbox that's as sharp as ever, this is kind of a dangerous fight, is it not? Like, you'd like to think Michael Bisping can go up there and do the Michael Bisping and pick Dan Henderson apart over five rounds. But, uh, as we just saw in, in, in Mike, or, uh, excuse me, Dan Henderson's last fight against Hector Lombard, like, he can still end you. And he can still end you in pretty impressive fashion, like we saw him do, uh, to Lombard at UFC 199. Well, and, uh, just as 
importantly and kind of impressively, while he'll take a shot and go down and you'll start to think like, uh-oh, this looks bad for old man Hendo, he bounces back from those surprisingly well for a dude who's been doing it as long as he has and who has taken as much punishment over the years as he has. You know, he's not that tough to put down, but he is super tough to put away. So you put those two together and it does seem like Michael Bisping is going to have to be there all night long, standing in front of that H-bomb. Uh, and that, that is a risky fight for him, especially because the way Dan Henderson's kind of approaching it is like, well, hey, worst case scenario, I retire at like 45 with 78 years of MMA experience under my belt, and I'm one and one against Michael Bisping. Big deal. Whereas Bisping, a lot of pressure here, man. You, he finally got to the mountaintop, and then you want to be one of those dudes who never manages to defend the title, gets knocked out a second time by Dan Henderson, who is then just going to like piece out the game. Uh, man, that would be rough. Uh, I can guarantee almost nothing in this life, but I can guarantee that when Dan Henderson retires, he will not say he's going to peace out the game. I'm peacing out this bitch. You That's know what he's going to say? Then he's going to push a barbecue across the across street, shirtless across the have street, have a party, pull next that door. trampoline down off the off the roof. Uh, the perhaps for me the most unexpected part of this round of the show is I feel like we both just talked me into this. Yeah, like starting this round, I was like, "What are we doing here? Why are we doing this?" Michael Bisping, Dan Henderson. Here we are eight minutes in, and I'm like, I'm pumped for this. Where I do I set my DVR? Just wait till October, my friend. I mean, I'm not saying it won't be a roller coaster of emotions. I'm not saying you won't wake up at 4 a.m. some morning and suddenly think, wait a minute, this is, this is absurd. But then, you know, you give somebody a chance to talk you into it. You hear another Michael Bisping sales pitch. You sit down for another one of these discussions. I'm telling you, you're going to go up and down to buy fight time. You're going to be into it. Leading up to this fight, I would assume we're going to see that knockout of Michael Bisping at UFC 100 approximately 100 times. If you do that, if you're Dan Henderson and you knock Michael Bisping out again with whatever head kick, weird spinning back fist thing, then you piece out the game. And then you are going to, you know, you're about to piece out the game. You got to try to land that flying fist again, right? <laughs> like, no matter how it goes down, like, even if you happen to be halfway across the cage, you got to get a running start move Herb Dean out of the way as you're in the air just to try to have history repeat itself. Yeah, that's going to be one uh, a tough choice to make for somebody like Herb Dean or Big John McCarthy. Do you throw your body on the grenade there? Do you get down there to put yourself between a, a fallen Michael Bisping and the flying forearm of Dan Henderson? Because you know he's going to give it a shot, man. You know he is. Uh, what I wonder, let's take our bets right now. Is there... A better chance of Henderson feeling like I got the title. Let me let me just get one more. Let me get one more with the title and get that paycheck. Or is there a better chance of him losing and be like, well, I can't go out like that the way everybody else does? I mean, I would, as if I were the odds maker, I would lay such long shot odds of Dan Henderson actually walking away with the title that it's got to be. That's got to be the the more like wait what did you say least likely scenario by default you're saying he's basically. more likely to walk away on a loss I would say here than he is with the belt with the UFC middleweight championship if Dan Henderson pulls that off it brings a kind of uh uh you know stylistic ending to his career that frankly I would just I wouldn't have thought he had in him yeah. I guess, what do you feel like the odds are just generally that he sticks to this promise no matter how it goes? Pretty low. Pretty yeah. low. I mean, 
given everything we know about Dan Henderson, don't you think like he seems like a pretty good candidate to show up in one of those Rise and Fight Federation tournaments at some point? Renewing his martial times. Just be like, oh, I know I shouldn't do this, but I'm going to. I'm going to do it. <laughs> Turns out the martial times were going to go on a little longer than I thought. All right. Well, let's do just saying stuff, Ben, and then we will get out of here for this week. Ben, this week, I guess I'm just saying that it seems crazy to say it, but in Francis Ngannou, who just got a win this past weekend at UFC on Fox 20, it kind of seems like the UFC heavyweight division may well have an actual bona fide 21-year-old prospect on its hands. So I guess this week I'm just saying, that's one. He's like 29. That's what I said, right? 29. I thought you said 21. Did I say 21? I think you I'm did. have to review the tape. You go back and look at the tape. He's 29. He turns 30 later this year, which so like just barely... puts him on the outskirts of prospect hood. But, but in the heavyweight, in the heavyweight division, division, we're going to take anything we can like get. It's like being 15 years old. And I would say, would it be nice to see him fight somebody we've heard of before or a contender or at some point maybe a guy with a Wikipedia page? Sure. But like we just said, this is the heavyweight division. I'm taking it. I'm just saying that's one. <laughs> that's one. Well, Chad, I'm just saying, I don't know if you saw this on the prelims on the UFC Fight Pass. Uh, uh, it ended up being the fight of the night, Jason Knight versus Jim Allers. Uh, and it was a good fight, kind of a, a wild fight, a lot of action back and forth. But it seems to me like a big part of making it the fight of the night was Jason Knight early on in the fight. And there's not a whole lot of people in the arena yet, so you can kind of hear everything that goes on taunting Jim Allers, telling him, come for that takedown, bitch. I know that's what you want. Ooh. Several points during this fight, just openly taunting him during striking exchanges, and you can hear it really clearly. It's not like it usually is where you can see somebody's mouth moving. You know they're talking to each other. The The commenter will say, oh, they're talking to each other in there, but usually won't tell you what they're saying. This one, you could actually hear it. It lended a, a, an immediate energy to the fight. Uh, and made you you sit up and take notice of a prelim that was on the fightpass.com. So I guess I'm just saying those guys got $50,000 for Friday the night, and they should consider at least a little bit of a tip for whoever miked the octagon that night. Because they did a good job. It allowed us to hear that was going on. And you can't say it played zero role in them getting that fight of the night bonus. I'm just saying. Just saying. Tip your mic guy. Well, that's going to do it for this week's co-main event podcast. We will be back next week to break down uh, all the stuff that happens at this weekend's upcoming fight card. As for right now, though, we are done. We are through. We are out. I mean, I think it comes down to how well Michael Bisping has treated you, perhaps, at UFC events, post-fight post events, the, the after party, if you are... Big John McCarthy or Herb Neal, and you're trying to decide whether you want to throw yourself in the path of the H bomb to see. Like really at some point, did Michael Bisping mistake you for the coach? Yeah. Or you're thinking about.